As a listener of this show, it's safe to say you like staying informed through podcasts. Now, with UStudio, your company can do the same. UStudio helps businesses host, manage, and distribute secure, private podcasts. Share confidential training with remote employees, product updates with customers and sales reps, weekly messages from the CEO, and more. Join companies like Salesforce, Nike, and Dell, who all trust UStudio to power their private podcasts. Request a free personalized demo today at the letter ustudio.com and be sure to mention you heard it on Equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity, everybody. TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined this week by the excellent Danny Crichton. Danny, how are you? I'm doing well. Overwhelmed a little bit with all the news, but it's super exciting. Yeah, I feel like it's been one of the most hectic starts to a year that I can ever recall in this business. And I feel like I've said that every single year for the last five, but somehow it gets sequentially worse. And uh, I feel like there wasn't even much of a holiday slowdown. And then right after New Year's, bam, big rounds, big announcements, a couple of S1s. And uh, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, a huge acquisition. I'm curious if you're surprised by the volume of news. I, I think it's a little bit surprising right after the holidays, but I, I also think that um, a lot of rounds got done in October, November, December, and now they're they're putting them into the new year. So, you know, every day I get another $200, 300000000 million round and say no to and PRs get angry at me. Um, uh, and and there's just there's just so much like there's just the, the bandwidth. You know, I, I can't type faster on a keyboard today than I did five <laughs> years ago, but somehow VCs are writing up term sheets at, a, at an alacrity that is is quite shocking. Oh, I can explain that, actually. The, the, the issue is that there are fewer reporters than ever covering the world that you and I cover, and there are more founders and VCs than ever before, as far as I can tell. And so the, the imbalance has gotten worse each year, and uh, you and I have yet to self-replicate and kind of form clones, and so we end up just getting snowed under. Not to complain, I love what I do. I'm just surprised by the amount of things that I can't get to that I would love to if I had uh, 30, 40 hours a day. That would be tremendous, but... It's nuts. Yeah, I, I think we're at a, a 20 to 1 unicorn to warm body who can type on a keyboard ratio <laughs> right now. Uh, I, I think it's actually probably worse than that, because think about how many like reporters you can name who cover early stage VC. Like, like take your time. It's like four or five. There's like four. It depends how yeah. many digits you have on your hand. But yes. Yeah, it's, it's not many. Um, but actually, let's let's stop complaining because life is good and we should not do that. And let's quickly talk about um, some short stuff. I want to riff on Insurify, which raised a little bit. I want to talk about work board, which raised a little bit. You're going to talk about product board. So all the boards, um, but starting off with Insurify, which is a online marketplace that helps people find um, better priced insurance products. And the reason why it caught my eye is because it raised a $23 million Series A. And here's the thing. It had only raised $6.6 million up to this point. So it raised a, a, a large multiple of the capital that it had before. And Danny, when a company raises that much more than its preceding total capital raise, what does that tell you about the company? I mean, hopefully the underlying numbers are there, right? So either it's hit a couple of revenue goals or internal milestones. Sometimes it just got really exciting. Maybe the market is really heated up because of an exit. Um, or, or frankly, the founder didn't fundraise well the first time around, and they're getting a lot better at that skill set along the way. That's funny. I, I don't think the last thing's the case. I think it's had a pretty interesting run. But um, Insurify raised a $23 million Series A led by Imtech Capital and Viola fintech i'm thinking that's not voila there's no accent so it's viola anywho um mass mutual ventures was in this nationwide took part and hearst ventures also was in the round cool i'm um, scooting on to 
a round that's pretty interesting. Workboard is a company that I've covered before. And this week they announced they raised a $30 million Series C. And I don't cover a lot of Series Cs. I don't cover a lot of $30 million Series Cs. But this company, Danny, I grabbed because they tripled in size again in 2019 after three and a half Xing ARR in 2018. And if you don't know why that matters, uh, the short gist is that everyone wants to grow as fast as possible and more than tripling your ARR for multiple years in a row shows that you're really hitting scale. And also Andreessen popped into the round uh, and they raised nine months after their Series B. So a lot of momentum there. It's a cool company. The CEO is really smart. And uh, I couldn't help myself, so I had to touch on it. But um, a different company, also with board in the name, is Product Board, Danny. What's going on with them? Yeah, I can get a little bored talking about companies with the name board in them, but um, it's not work board, it's product board. Um, and this is in the space of, of sort of interesting markets that didn't exist a couple of years ago. So product board focuses on product managers and people kind of um, in the product world. Um, it, it's SaaS for them, right? So it, it's a classic platform play. It raised on Wednesday, uh, it announced a $45 million Series B led by Sequoia Capital and, and Bessemer. And what, what's interesting to me here is, again, like, the idea that there are enough product managers in the universe to actually build an AR-driven product um, is shocking to me. Like uh, we, we, uh, my co-editor uh, Jordan Crook uh, talked about design startups as potentially the next entrepreneurial gold rush on Extra Crunch a few weeks ago. Um, she talked about Envision, Sketch, Figma, and Canva. And so, you know, whether it's designers, whether it's UX researchers, whether it's product managers, there's so much money in tech. There's so many thousands of people in these professions that uh, you can actually build a hundred million dollar AR company. Um, maybe not easily, but certainly the, the, that market now exists. And so I think Product Board is a great example of where um, investors are increasingly keen on finding new professions, new types of roles, and building products directly for them. Yeah, and just to add some notes on that, Figma is backed by Kleiner Perkins. I've heard people rave about Canva and Envision. So it isn't just there's multiple players, there's multiple well-funded, well-liked players in this space. And that's pretty exciting. Uh, it also goes to show just the density of... Um, new company development that we're seeing, going back to the news cycle stuff and before, this is why it's so busy. Everyone's doing so much so quickly. Um, okay, let's put the what, the early stage stuff aside for a minute and just riff really quickly on late stage and then I have to get us over to Platt because I'm so excited about that. Um, this week, a couple of notes about companies that have reached certain scale. So first of all, if you haven't heard of a company called Cloudinary, uh, you probably should have. They're a fascinating firm that has hit 60 million ARR bootstrapped. And I think that's the single most efficient bit of growth I've ever heard of from a company ever. Started as a consultancy, built their first product to fill a niche they saw in the market that they were having to kind of recode for their clients, turned it into a business, and have just grown like heck with that external capital as a SaaS company, which I think is super cool. Um, Extra Hop out of Seattle should hit 100 million ARR this year. Love tracking those thresholds. Um, maybe they might go public in 2021, give or take. Just put that on your IPO list. And then also SiteMinder this morning uh, raised 70 million US or 100 million Australian. And they are at the 100 million ARR mark in Australian money, which is 70 million ARR in US dollars. And now they are a unicorn-ish. So that's the late stage update. Lots of stuff going on, Danny. And I'm really enjoying how companies are a bit more willing to share these days about where they are in terms of size. And I think that's a good trend as we get a little bit tired of the unicorn um, moniker. But... Speaking about unicorns, Plaid, what a story. Uh, what an incredible story. I mean, you know, here, here's a company, I mean, we, we, we've talked about fintech for a long time, but, you know, it's interesting if you look at Google search trends or even the search trends on TechCrunch, kind of our internal data, fintech wasn't a category five years ago. Like there was just nothing, no one's searching for it, didn't exist. Um, and, and it just, it spiraled out of control, particularly last year where we had 
you know, multiple multi-hundred million dollar rounds. It was one of the most popular spaces. And now we have one of the great exits uh, already in the beginning of this year with, with Plaid going to Visa for $5.3 billion or about two exits final uh, private valuation. And so this was a huge success. I mean, so uh, the seed round was done by Spark Capital, $2.8 million in September 2013. That was followed up about a year later by NEA with a $12.5 million Series A. Um, the, the, the real round, uh, uh, from what I hear, was the Series B, which was led by Goldman Sachs, $44 million in June of 2016. And then the, the one that um, annoys, I think, a lot of VCs, because almost everyone saw it, but a lot of people said no, was actually the Series C in December 2018. So th this was about mm. a year ago. Um, it was a $250 million uh, round led by Index and Kleiner. Um, and from what I hear, the, the, this final round, you know, again, was 2x. So you could have made 2x your money in about 12 months. And obviously, VCs always hate this because nothing really changed in the company that period of time, right? Like nothing fundamentally from a revenue model or from a growth perspective or for a product uh, changed. And so um, there was a lot of um, back and forth. Uh, I saw some emails. Um, from folks who were like, look, I said I wanted to get this done and, you know, my, my partners didn't want to do it or whatnot. <laughs> and everyone's trying to take credit or not credit at the time. But I, I, I think for the founders um, who are going to come out with uh, a pretty couple hundred million bucks, uh, it's, it's a really nice payday uh, for great companies. Yeah. And the great company point is really fascinating because I was talking to, um, I'll keep them nameless just for the sake of, of being more transparent about what we talked about. I was talking to one of their investors last night um, as I was trying to log off actually and go be a normal human. Um, we were talking about the business and the exit and I was like, how happy are you with this? You know, it, was it too soon? Could they have stayed longer? And he was like, you know, this company, if it had gone public and you had seen an S1, you would have been pretty excited about it. Like, it was a pretty high quality business. So I, I, I'm almost sad that it didn't go public. But at the same time, if you can 2X a $2.65 billion valuation in one year, I mean, that's an insane amount of value creation on like a per day basis. And so it's hard to say no to. Um, but keep in mind that uh, there are some comps to this business. It's a, an API kind of business that helps facilitate money transfer. Um, Twilio does this for comms and has gone public and done very, very well. There are some smaller companies doing similar things. Uh, we talked about Noyo on the show before that does kind of healthcare APIs, if you will. Um, so I think VCs are figuring out the space is hot. Um, I'm, I'm kind of uh, impressed. This is the biggest deal so far of the year and could be the biggest one we see for a long time. But I'm curious, Danny, from Visa's perspective, um, what do you think they were looking at here that made them so ready to drop um, such an enormous stack of money on a startup? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, there are absolutely relationships between um, Plaid and, and Twilio. The, the difference is, is Twilio fundamentally owned its own infrastructure, right? Like it, it was its own telecommunications operative. You want to send text messages, do phone calls. They sort of own that pipeline. Um, and they worked with, obviously, the telcos to make that work. Uh, Plaid always had this sort of uh, struggle because it really didn't want to work with banks. Banks didn't want to make a mm. lot of this data accessible. And so um, there was a lot of um, l l uh, hacks loosely used, but it was like you had to rotate IP addresses, you had to fake account logins because you know you, you basically had to break in with the user's consent. I mean, you're breaking into your own account. Um, Chase may not want to release my data, but I would like my Chase data to be given to someone else. And so Plat always kind of had to work around the banks or kind of work with them. And it was sort of always this kind of intense relationship. And so I think by adding Visa, you know, you're sort of adding two sides of the same coin, which is Visa has those relationships. Yes. They can grow. They can grow it with um, uh, Plata done a, a tuck-in acquisition called Quovo um, in early 2019, which was focused on kind of the investment side of the equation, whereas Plata was focused on the banking side of the equation. And so um, with Visa on top of that is the payments gateway infrastructure having a lot of those kind of uh, strategic B2B relationships. 
um, a lot of the downside to Plaid goes away. Um, and, and we've seen this similarly uh, late last year. We had uh, an acquisition, PayPal uh, bought Honey, which was sort of an online yes. comparison tool for four billion bucks. But it was a similar situation in which, you know, Honey was sort of in this kind of nebulous gray zone where it's like, look, you buy on Amazon, but when you're on Amazon, it's going to tell you where else potentially you want to go to shop. Uh, Amazon doesn't like that. We actually saw Amazon try to shut down Honey in the last week. Um, and there's a big news story. But then you have PayPal. And PayPal is a, a huge payment processor. And so mm -hmm. it's adding that kind of legal and regulatory heft uh, behind them to try to protect the company. And so to my mind, the $5.3 you saw, uh, maybe, you know, they didn't go to an IPO. No, they didn't go all the way to the end. But this is sort of like the optimal kind of exit. Like it's a, it's a really nice valuation. It's to an acquirer who's going to be able to protect the asset in a way that I think few others were going to be able to do. Yeah. And so Ron Miller and ITC spent a lot of time going and uh, talking to analysts and some investors trying to figure out, you know, people's view of the deal from like a, from a product perspective, from a market perspective. And the weirdest thing was that everyone was pretty positive. Like there wasn't really a lot of negative voices to even be found to listen to about the deal. People just seemed to kind of get it. Um, to put the dollar amount in focus, though, I think they were, do, they were expected to do about 100 to 200 million revenue in 2019. So expensive, but not insanely expensive, given the fact that I'm assuming it was growing pretty quick with pretty good economics. So the dollar amount doesn't really scare me. The, the bet's interesting, though. However, on that point, Visa has to explain to people other than just us about why it's doing this. And uh, they dropped a, um, a relatively short slide deck, if you will, for investors to kind of parse through because they just spent a bunch of you know, shareholder wealth on this uh, smaller company that I bet a lot of people hadn't heard of. And they highlighted... Uh, expansion of total addressable market, or TAM, acceleration of long-term revenue growth trajectory. So their longer-term future revenues should be a lot larger, which is great. And then they also said best-in-class platform and team, which is a pretty big statement. And to me, I also read that as them saying, we're going to keep these people. And so I'm presuming Plaid should keep its independence and not be just squashed under the corporate you know, jaws of Visa, which is a much larger company, because then everyone will leave and you won't have this team that you've already told your investors that you're very serious about. Um, I, I really dig it. And uh, one fun thing that Visa did was drop a lot of um, kind of like user growth numbers for other fintechs in the world. Um, and I didn't know, for example, that Credit Karma had 100 million uh, users and was growing at 18% a year. Coinbase, 30 million. Mint, 20. Uh, according to this, this document here, like uh, eToro, 10 million. Revolut uh, eight, and then all the way down to Chime five million, Acorns four and a half, and Dash three and a half. Stash is uh, one point seven. So fascinating data set. I love the deal, and uh, all I know is that there's a lot of VCs that are a lot richer today, and now they finally have some cash on cash returns after boasting about their IRR in this deal for years. So and that's gonna feel pretty and, good, and, and some serious uh, benefit for the founders as well. And, and look, you know, the other half of the story here for Plaid is there, there was a lot of competition in this space. There was Yodli, there was Standard Treasury, there was a bunch of others. Um, I, I don't remember exactly where all those ended up, but Plaid did become kind of the, the racehorse to bet on um, at some point. And it's just a classic example of like, look, at some point there had to be an API layer for banks. It just mm -hmm. so happened that Plaid owned that space, managed to build the best of breed product, um, widely used in the developer world. Uh, and now they're getting their rewards uh, for all that hard work. And so it's, it's a great exit and, and one that super exciting to see so early in the year. Yep. And then uh, last thought, I wonder what MasterCard does to respond. I'm curious if there's a, a number two or number three player they can kind of absorb as well. But I mean, certainly this puts Visa ahead in the future context uh, for payments. Uh, let's well, move for everything on. Else, well, for everything else, there's MasterCard. <laughs> I did not know where you were going with that. Did we allow dad jokes on the show? 
I don't I don't know the rules about that. We do. The producer says yes. Okay, that gets to stay in the show. All right. Well, now you all heard that. So on behalf of Danny, I'm sorry. And <laughs> we're going to scoot on um, to some geographical um, chicanery. We're going to talk about the West Coast and its share of the U.S. venture market. And to kick things off in this area, uh, U.S. venture capital investment was once again over $130 billion in 2019, second consecutive year. Um, just starting with that, Danny, does that number still shock you? Or do you think you've become kind of inured or accustomed to that level of investment domestically on the VC side? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 still a really shocking number. I mean, particularly if you compare it to where it was seven years ago. Um, I think we're used to it today. Um, there are enough of these late stage private companies that just don't go public. And so you see these massive rounds that sort of drive that number up. But um, as the data from the National Venture Capital Association, PitchBook, Carta, and SVB put together, um, there were approximately 2,500 late stage deals last year for 85 billion bucks. And so it's not just that there's a lot of seed rounds, obviously, but it's also... You know, when you think of late stage, there are thousands of companies raising at the late stage. Um, you know, we talk about this pipeline, but the, the pipeline is just massive at every single stage along the way. And even at the unicorn stage, I think the last number I saw was 350 unicorns. Certainly, we're probably missing 20 press releases in the last week on new unicorns. I think I've seen at least five <laughs> or six. Yep. And so maybe we're already approaching 400. Um, and, and that's just in, incredible the numbers of, of companies out there. So um, the other the other big news that, that came out of this was um, on the West Coast. Um, the, the West Coast is actually barely a majority of venture capital today. So across the United States, um, there's been a huge growth of, of rounds in the mid-Atlantic, um, in New England, and particularly the Southeast, um, and in the mountain states. And so um, we're seeing this growth. We've, we've emphasized this particularly with us uh, being on the East Coast these days. Um, but there's been more and more rounds in places like uh, Utah, in, in D.C., in the metro area there, certainly in New York City, um, in Atlanta, in Miami, and elsewhere. Um, and so that, that SaaS formula that's really popular with a lot of investors is, is spreading all around the country. And you're, you're seeing it. It's not that Silicon Valley is sort of falling behind, but there is this growth in other markets. And so just less and less intensity, intensity and concentration is happening in the Valley today. It almost sounded like you just said that Utah was on the East Coast. Uh, just to be super clear about that hilarious little riff. But you're totally right in general that the, the center of gravity has moved away from, I don't know, U Cupertino, Utah is Sunnyvale. east of California. I mean, barely. So if, your if your next example is New York. I mean, you could fly west, but that would be very long. Um, anyways, I, I do think it's important to keep in mind that the center of gravity is changing. And one thing that I've seen in this vein is increasing looks at the Utah space. People really seem to have caught on after a couple of IPOs and a couple of unicorns that that is an enormously um, lucrative place to hire and also to build. So much so that the idea um, that you can go there and build your outbound sales team is now kind of moot because everyone's already thought of that, done that, and now the labor prices there have risen to the point of almost parity with other markets. And so it's become less attractive as a, as a hub. Um, not to say that Atlanta and other places don't have more room to grow, but Utah has almost been kind of like picked over to some degree. Um, I'm fascinated by the late stage numbers. And I want to talk about the unicorn stat you brought up. We're, we don't see that many unicorn exits. Like Plaid, well done, good job. You know, a 2X on a 2.65, great. But that is one out of hundreds of unicorns that need an exit. And I, I don't know what you're hearing, Danny, but I'm not hearing a stampede of unicorns toward the exits, towards the IPO markets. And I'm not seeing a huge upsurge in M&A activity. So are we going to see like an increased jam up at the end of the market where companies just aren't going public, but we're still creating more and more eventual companies that do need to debut? I think one of the big challenges, and this is sort of exactly what you talked about with Plaid, right? Which is the multiple that they exited to Visa, given the revenues, 
was expensive. I mean, uh, yes. it may have been supported in S one. It may have been. It, it was not a WeWork by any stretch of the imagination. There's real revenues. It's a, you know, yep. there's real cash flow. But I, I think one of the challenges is you you still see this margin. You know, this this multiple compression that happens when you go public, right? You're going from a private market that might value your revenue at thirty or forty x, and maybe the public market is at twenty twenty five. Uh, and that doesn't mean you can't go public, but it is challenging to build a story where, um, gee, if you were just going a little bit faster, if you had a little bit more revenue, maybe it would work out better. And so I, I, I don't know if we're going to see a jam up. I, I think we're going to see some firms are going to continue to try to find these kind of strategic partnerships where they can go to a visa and visa is going to help a lot. And they're willing to pay a premium essentially to, to have something under the balance sheet that makes a lot of sense. Or you're going to see more and more buyouts. So, I mean, we've seen Insight, you've seen Vista Equity, you've seen some of these other SaaS late stage buyout kind of firms who say, hey, we'll give you the exit you're looking for. And then we're going to go and either bring it together and have synergy, or we'll, we'll find another angle to create the kind of strategic value to keep that multiple where it needs to be. I, I think we're going to see a lot more of those sorts of uh, buyout deals, particularly, um, I saw a study today. Uh, I apologize. I don't remember who, where the data was from, but it was mm. talking about how the number of apps that people are installing. Um, uh, for SaaS apps is actually increasing for enterprise users. And so um, the average enterprise user is like using 25% more apps in the last two years than they were the year before, right? So at wow. some point, you know, for you and me, I think we have access, I, I think I have access to like 95 apps at work. And oh, so yeah, at some gosh. point you got to wonder like, when does this start to consolidate? When do these different disparate, you know, features of HR come together into one HR package or to one sales package or kind of what we were talking about with product board, which is, you know, when do the product managers all get one app that's like one app to rule them all? Uh, maybe, and so I think we will see more and more of that going forward. Maybe you could take all of your apps, right, that were like focused on like the work environment and call them Office. And then what you could do is you could bundle them and sell them as a package, like Office, like for everyday stuff, like Office 365. I think it'd be a huge hit. I think that would be a future performance. It's almost, it's almost like a suite of, of, of apps. Oh, man. You know, and back in the day before you had cloud, I bet you could even sell the same thing in a box. I bet you could do that. I bet that would be a good do, business. I think you could do that. Yeah. You know, if only um, we had that idea in 95 or 97 or, or, or 2001. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be rich. We'd be rich. Um, um, and say we're on this equity podcast talking about other people making a lot of money. That, that is the theme of the show. The theme of the show is Danny and I are fine, but uh, we don't have a yacht. And that's, that's the summary. Um, going back to the VC topic, though, according to the, the research we were going through, there were 20 mega funds, which I think are a billion and larger uh, closed in 2019. And the largest was actually TCV's 10th fund at 3.2 billion. Um, I just think we've become so accustomed to this now. This doesn't shock me. I'm not surprised that there were 20 of these. I'm not surprised that the largest was 3.2. That seems to me totally rational given the scale of late stage capital needed. I'm just curious when the market does change and when these companies are still not public, what's going to happen? And no one else seems worried but me. So I'm probably wrong and I accept that. But to me, we're just building up a lot of risk that we haven't found a way to uh, to diminish via an exit. I think that's absolutely right. You know, the question is, is um, what is the SoftBank denouement effect that goes on in the next uh, couple of months? In other words, you know, SoftBank has burned through most of its balance sheet. It's It seems to be struggling to raise fund two. It looks like it might take a, a lot more time to raise fund two. So what's ironic is, you know, a lot of these mega funds try to catch up. You know, they, they scaled up in order to compete with SoftBank. And then SoftBank left the market. And so interestingly, the competitor is no longer in the market. And and you have people like TCV. We had Norwest, I think, raise like two or two point one billion. Mm -hmm. um, used to be an early stage fund. Now it's a multi billion dollar, you know, multi stage fund. Um, and so as you go through this, it's like they may actually get lucky uh, and unintentionally in trying to kind of follow behind in SoftBank and, and Mazda Sun's sort of path breaking kind of model for venture. 
uh, with them out of the way, there's now a lot of opportunities for the $200, $300 million rounds that may have otherwise been pretty contested. Yeah, actually, on that point, I was talking to John Briones today uh, from um, Unusual Adventures. He was on the show back in August of last year. And one of the things he said was, you know, you can't really be super effective and also be in every single possible stage because you don't want a heart surgeon to do your whatever other medical procedure. And the people specialize in this. But I think that we've now allowed everyone to do everything. Like, I mean, everyone's doing seed stage. Everyone's doing middle to late. So there's just enough capital bouncing around that everyone's now been stretched to some degree. Um, but emphasizing your point about uh, how big these rounds have gotten, there's some data from our friends over at Crunchbase News looking at the European uh, venture capital scene, if you will, in uh, 2019. And um, the total number of deals in the EU went down somewhat dramatically from 6,066 in 2018 to just over 4,200 in 2019. But the amount of capital that was invested in those rounds rose from about 29 billion to about 36 billion. And when rounds go down and dollars go up, the average deal size is greatly increasing. And that implies to me an increasingly focused on late stage companies um, that maybe can't go public, maybe just don't want to. I mean, we don't know, but we have seen some S1s this year and they haven't been shockingly impressive. So I'm, I'm, I'm worried if there's a lot more kind of donkeys out there hiding behind another $100 million check. But what's weird to me is um, I think we've had what? One medical, um, we've had uh, Casper. Casper. Mm-hmm. Is that it? That's it so far. Yeah, I think those are the only two, uh, which are which are kind of not the companies you would expect to go public. Like a D to C mattress brand with a couple other different products in the portfolio, <laughs> yeah. and then one medical, which is sort of a a hybrid subscription plus clinical fee revenue kind of model. Yeah. Um, you, we haven't seen just a classic SaaS deal, and there are hundreds of these. Uh, that that's what's kind of nuts to me is there's in, in, in this kind of mezzanine capital layer, there are literally two three hundred SaaS unicorns that all of which presumably could go public like theoretically there could be one a day we could we could literally have sas 365 and have a new sas <laughs> s1 and give alex so much work to do that he would need a work board uh, a product board and a bunch of other sas software just to keep track of it all um and uh, we're not seeing that so so I, I do think that you're seeing more and more at the, i think in europe there's a little bit more conservatism around venture capital so you see more at the late stage growth you see yeah. more in companies that are more um figured out and there's less market and product risk but uh nonetheless like for those of us waiting for the s1s and to actually see these numbers go public like you know maybe this is the argument for carta right at the end of the day is like maybe these companies never go public maybe they don't even take a direct listing um they're just going to be there forever as private entities and there's enough no. liquidity that the people who need liquidity can find it i i, I demand a future in which that, that's not the case though i will also say that i do not want to see sas 365 because i would get divorced and i just got married so i don't want to work that much because that would be sad. Um, but there's so much going on that, in fact, we're seeing a fun trend in among the VCs that we talked to. And Danny actually took the time to blog this up for everybody on, on, over on TC. Uh, the best headline I've seen all week, uh, I think, in, on the Internet, and it just reads, VCs are just tired. And Danny, I want you to tell people uh, what you saw in SF. Yeah, so I did a, a quick trip to SF, um, talked to a dozen plus VCs. And you know, the, the one refrain I just kept hearing was, you know, God, it's so tiring out there. There's so many rounds getting done. There's so many SaaS deals. Um, you know, people are coming back from their international vacations in, in Africa and Latin America, oh, no. and, in Cuba. So hard. Um, it's, it's a very tough life, lifestyle um, globally, seriously. Um, the, the 1% have it the worst. Yes. Um, but, but in all honesty, like it, it's really challenging because for both founders and for investors, a lot of these growth rounds happen so quickly. The numbers are so obvious. Everyone knows how to plug SaaS numbers into the model today. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're, at, you're playing at the B, C, and D, um, 
you know, it's just, it's so contested. There's a hundred funds who can compete for a hundred million dollar round a day and have the pocketbooks and the desire to win that deal at all costs. And so it, in some ways it's a little bit, uh, I don't even want to call it Wolf of Wall Street because it's actually a really sad game. Like it's not a game in which people are kind of like getting immediate liquidity off your bond sales or your, your <laughs> leverage buyout deals. You're actually seeing a world in which you're, you're buying into companies that don't go public for seven to 10 years. And, and like Plaid, uh, you know, a year ago, it was sold at, I guess, about two and a half billion uh, post valuation sort of what's been publicly reported. I'm not sure if that's actually true internally. Uh, but, you know, half of the 5.3 billion that we heard, um, some people got lucky, some people didn't. And in some cases, like people said no, because they didn't have time to look at it. And so, you know, you're seeing this intensification of FOMO that I think um, is something to really watch out for, because I think as a founder, you want to work with partners you trust and you work with. Uh, but the re reality is, if you're talking to two, three, four hundred SaaS companies a year, all of which are doing pretty well, and you're trying to find the breakout, you can't have a relationship with every one of those founders. And so increasingly, you're seeing people who go, oh, this is the company for today. 40 VCs are running at them, like down Soma uh, in South Park, um, all trying to go to the American Cheese Factory, whatever the hell it's called. But people are just tired. So, so I do think um, it, it will be interesting to see the vintage years for 2018, 2019, 2020 in eight to 10 years and see how they really perform. Because I do think the valuations are getting very high. VCs are very aware that they're very high. Um, they're making very quick decisions. And, uh, you know, it, it's tough to make money in those kind of conditions. Yeah, yeah. What's really funny is I was talking to a VC today and they were discussing the, the YC funding market and how demo days work and all this. I talked, I've been talking to a lot of VCs lately, as you can tell. Um, and what you just described was the kind of the, the post demo day funding like, like fight, but with checks that are a hundred times as large. And that's a fascinating thing. Like you talk about in this piece, how there's not enough time to forge a new relationship and really get to know someone before you take their money. That's seed, you know, often if things are competitive. Uh, so it's fascinating to see the same competitive pressures across the entire gamut of uh, the venture landscape. That is all the time we have for today, Danny. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at, at Danny Crichton. Crichton is C-R-I-C-H-T-O-N. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at, at Alex. You can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. Our hashtag is equitypod. The best way to keep the show going if you want to help out is to leave us a review. Chris will read it if it's nice. Today's episode was produced, recorded, and edited by Christopher Gates. A big thanks to Henry Picavet, our executive producer, and Yashad Kulkarni, TC's executive producer of video. Equity is back Monday morning in your feed. We'll see you all then. Goodbye. Goodbye.